Last week, former President Donald Trump was indicted by the federal government for alleged retention and concealment of classified documents after he left office. On this week's We the People, we break down the legal and constitutional significance of the historic indictment. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Joining us to help understand the charges against former President Trump are two of America's leading scholars of national security law. Jamil Jaffer is the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. He served in the legislative and executive branches, including as counsel to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the White House, and the Department of Justice. Jamil, welcome back to We the People. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. And Ona Hathaway is Gerald C. and Bernice Latrobe Smith, Professor of International Law at Yale Law School. She served as counsel to the Department of Defense, and she recently wrote an op-ed on the Trump indictment for The New York Times. Her most recent book is The Internationalist, How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World. Ona, it's wonderful to welcome you back to We the People. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Let's start with the indictment itself. Uh, Jamil, what are the major charges of the indictment and uh, how strong are they? Sure. Well, look, the biggest muscle movement, as I see it in this indictment, is the uh, 31-count charge uh, against President Trump for willful retention of national defense information. Uh, That requires the government to prove that he unlawfully had possession of national defense uh, documents, uh, that he willfully retained them, um, and that the facts prove that. Beyond that, there are additional charges uh, relating to conspiracy, obstruction of justice, false statements to federal officials, and those largely revolve around conversations that President Trump had with his lawyers. Uh, we should talk about the attorney-client privilege at some point and the, and the crime-fraud exception, um, but conversations he had with his lawyers and with his staff uh, about the documents themselves, whether he had them, whether he didn't have them, where they were. At one point, the, uh, the indictment uh, alleges uh, that President Trump uh, engaged in an effort with one of his aides, who's also charged, uh, to move boxes out of the room that his own attorneys were going to search to produce the documents in an effort to frustrate his own attorney's search for documents and therefore frustrates the government's ability to get some of these documents back. Um, so those are the major charges at you know, a high level, 37 counts, 31 of them relating to this willful retention of uh, documents relating to the national defense. Um, to me, that's the one that has the most, uh, uh, A, both, both is the most is most dangerous for him uh, from a legal perspective um, and has the most purchase because, as we know, um, after the FBI showed up, they found 102 classified documents, of which 31 of them um, were uh, at various levels, including top secret, sensitive compartment information, special access programs. So that's sort of uh, the way I see it, Jeffrey. Thanks so much. Uh, so that's um, the subsection of the Espionage Act 793E, and I'll just read it and ask Ona about it. Uh, whoever, having unauthorized possession of documents relating to the national defense, which information the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation, willfully communicates, delivers, or transmits the information to a person not entitled to receive it, or, and here's the language you were flagging, willfully retains the same and fails to deliver it to the officer or employee of the United States entitled to receive it. 
Ona, what is the significance of that language and, and how strong is the charge against President Trump? Yeah, I mean, the significance is, um, well, that this, this really what they have to show is that he retained, that he willfully retained national defense information. That's, that's really the key, the key language. And in there, one of the, I think, the hurdles going in was this idea of willfully, right? Because it requires some proof of intent, And I think that has been the challenge, I suspect, all along in building the case is showing that he knew he was retaining classified information. He understood that it was classified information that he was retaining because there were these various arguments sort of circulating around that, you know, he thought that he had declassified it, that by simply choosing to remove it, that he had declassified these documents in some way, even though he had not notified anyone or there was no information out there as to there having been declassified. But then this tape that was recently leaked and that is mentioned in the indictment specifically quotes President Trump saying that he was, you know, holding on to classified document, apparently waving it around in this meeting um, with people not cleared to see it. Of course, he was among the people not cleared to see it at that time. Um, And basically saying this is still classified and I could have declassified it when I was president, but I didn't, I should have. Um, And it remained secret. So He's effectively admitting to the intent um, portion of the charge, which I think was probably going to be among the harder elements to to prove. But he sort of delivered up almost a kind of uh, taped confession, um, and it, that's that's quoted at some length in the in the indictment because it's so important to really proving that 793e um, provision is actually met. Thanks for flagging that part of the indictment, and I'll just. Uh... Read from it in July 2021 at the Bedminster Golf Club uh, during an audio recorded session. Trump described the plan of attack he said was prepared by the Department of Defense. And he also said, as president, I could have declassified it. Now I can't, but this is still a secret. And then later he showed a representative of his political action committee who didn't possess a security clearance, a classified map, and told the representatives he should not be showing it to the representative. The representative should not get too close. Uh, Jamil, what, what, what's the significance of, of those alleged facts, and, and what will President Trump's defense likely be on the on the charge of willfully retaining? Well, you know, I mean, I think this is going to be a real tough one for him to confront, as Ona correctly lays out. I mean, they have him on tape saying these documents are classified; they're sensitive. You can't look at them. Um, in the case of the uh, uh, individual from his political action committee, he actually says, "Don't don't get too close to this map that I'm showing you. Uh, you know, it's it's still secret." Um, and in both cases, he describes the documents as having been classified. Uh, in one case, he specifically says, "I could have, but didn't," as Ona lays out, uh, didn't declassify it, um, so it's still secret. Um, and that is, you know, sort of a, a level of knowledge that I think we didn't. We didn't know for sure that he necessarily had, particularly given, uh, as Ona points out, his arguments that he thought he declassified them by by just thinking about it. Let me just say, to be clear, that is not an acceptable way to declassify information. You, the president has broad authority when he's president to declassify. He can do it by executing a formal document. That's the normal way. But as we know, the Trump administration didn't always do things the normal way. Um, and so, you know, he can also do it by speaking about it publicly. He can, he can, he can tell somebody he intends to declassify something. 
and he can, as he, as President Trump himself actually did, take a photograph on his iPhone of a highly classified satellite image uh, from a U.S. spy satellite of an Iranian uh, ballistic missile and tweet it out. I mean, that may be a crazy way to declassify, but it happened. There, nobody thinks any of that's uh, inappropriate or unacceptable because the president has broad declassification authority. But simply by thinking about it without embodying that in some way makes it impossible to actually know and therefore can't be can't really be a way to declassify. And so, um, but this other evidence that's now, that's now coming in, if it comes in, and again, this is critical, right? Remember, as we all know in our system, uh, you're innocent until proven guilty. The government has the burden of proof to show the facts as alleged in the indictment are as they say they are, and they have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. If they do, however, as Ona's correctly laid out, and if these documents that are being talked about on these tapes are in the 31 documents that are listed in the indictment, we don't know for sure. It's fair to assume they are, but we don't know for sure. Um, then I think the, the president has an uphill battle in putting down these charges. And if he's convicted, that's up to 20 years in prison per count, up to a $250,000 fine per count. So this could be very expensive and uh, subject him to a significant amount of uh, uh, jail time. I might add one more thing to what Jamil just said and, and to your question about sort of 793E and what, what has to be proven. So I mentioned the willfully point earlier. It's also this question of what is information relating to the national defense. Um, and that is key. I mean, what's so interesting about the Espionage Act is that it was passed in 1917. That was actually before the U.S. government even had a formal classification system. And so it it doesn't actually um, mention anywhere in 793E or in this Espionage Act the system of classification the government has since developed since that law was originally passed. It uses instead this term information relating to the national defense. Now, courts often treat them as uh, classification and information relating to national defense as, as though they are one and the same, but it is not enough necessarily to just show that these are top secret. And, and as Jamil said, like among the most classified documents the U.S. government has, even some of the names of the programs are code word programs and they've redacted them because the, the actual name of the program is itself classified. So the government is going to have a, a real challenge here. And they're going to have to show that these documents include information relating to national defense, but these remain classified documents. So they're going to have to figure out how to explain to a jury that this is information relating to national defense and describe these documents in enough generality uh, that the jury can come to that conclusion. But the jury's not going to be cleared into these programs. Um, and so they're not going to be actually able to read these, these documents unless the government decides to declassify it. But the the government is in this kind of catch-22 in a sense, because if it declassifies the documents and this question as to whether it really is information related to national defense, it's just, well, maybe they're not that important after all, because we can let the whole world know about them. Um, if you don't, and if, you, if they remain classified, then they really have a challenge of sort of showing um, what's in them and saying enough about them to get the jury to make that conclusion. So it, it, it really is a, it's really challenging. We get a little bit of a, a flavor of how they think they're going to try to go about that through the brief description of these documents in the indictment where they lay out, you know, if these are true uh, descriptions of these documents, pretty stunning, you know, information that's information relating to, you know, nuclear capabilities of a foreign country, you know, uh, various military capabilities of foreign allies um, and other countries, you know, U.S. government's own foreign capabilities, particular plans and response. Um, but that is going to be a challenge in proving the 793E uh, charge. Jamil, tell us more about how that challenge might 
play out? What are some of the evidentiary objections that might be raised? And, and given the fact that the indictment says that they are related to nuclear defense, uh, is the jury likely to be persuaded or not? Yeah, you know, this is uh, one of the hard parts for the government because, you know, these are highly classified documents. Uh, uh, of, the, of the 31 charged, 10 are top secret sensitive compartmented information. That means uh, that the release of these documents, just to classify the top secret level alone, uh, would, cr- would cause uh, extraordinarily grave harm to U.S. national security, right? SCI, sensitive compartment information, means that it comes from uh, a collection methodology, you know, sometimes signals intelligence, overhead surveillance, um, uh, human intelligence uh, that's particularly sensitive, right? And then beyond that, um, that's 10 of those documents are TSSCI, top secret sensitive compartment information. Another eight are top secret uh, special access programs or SAPs. These are programs that are even more sensitive, either collection capabilities, specific assets, you know, uh, defectors and the like. Um, And so these are even more sensitive. So 18 of the 31 documents involve not just extraordinarily grave harm to American national security, but require clearances beyond that even. And so um, bringing these documents into evidence will be difficult. There is the Classified Information Procedures Act that allows the government to publish uh, documents uh, to the court and to the jury without uh, making it public and to the defense as necessary. and there's, so there's a variety of methodologies by which you might do this. But of course, remember, part of President Trump's defense against these charges is not just a legal defense, it's a political defense. And you can be assured that in addition to saying what he's already said, which is that he's being pursued by the deep state, that the FBI and the Justice Department are being weaponized against him, he's going to say, oh, now look, secret evidence. They won't even tell you, the American public, what I've done. And what's, you know, if these, if this is so, so bad, why can't they describe it? Why can't they talk about it? These, these descriptions don't mean anything. And by the way, I've seen the documents. There's nothing classified in there. I'm the president of the United States. I can tell you. And so, um, so we're going to see a lot of that, right? So there'll be, and there'll be, there no doubt in my mind that they'll litigate uh, the the ability of the government to present these documents uh, and and the like, and and they may very, the, the Trump team may very well try to seek interlocutory review up to the Eleventh Circuit and the Supreme Court on a variety of grounds, not just evidentiary. And so this case could be years before it goes to trial. And by the way, if that's true. This case, in a lot of ways, really benefits President Trump politically because it 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 it's, it solidifies his view of himself and 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 his view of the world amongst in, amongst his base. And so, in a primary, it can actually benefit him. And going even to the general, it may benefit him with turnout for his for his voters. And then, of course, if he's elected before being convicted or even after being convicted, because he said he's going to continue to run, right? The question is. Can he uh, can he ask the Justice Department to not prosecute? Will they will they agree to that? And if not, can he pardon himself? And so these are very tough questions, you know, that are going to all be in play now that the Justice Department has brought these charges against a former president who's running for re-election. Thanks for that. Well, maybe we'll talk in a in a bit about self pardons and other things that might happen if if Trump is actually elected. But I want to walk us through. The timing for the trial, including the complexity of the obstruction charges, and do you agree with uh, Jamil or not that uh, because of interlocutory appeals, it might take a whole long time? Yeah, I do. You know, I think that um, uh, experts, you know, I I have not myself uh, tried one of these cases, so, but I understand from those who have that um, there are that they can go quickly, but only if the defendant and defendant's counsel is really cooperative. Um, and we have lots of reasons to believe that that's not going to be the case here. So, you know, first of all, a normal person facing these kinds of charges would plead. Um, this this would not go to trial. 
Um, that's, but Trump, of course, is not a normal person. <laughs> and, and so he's going to fight it every step of the way. And he's going to fight it tooth and nail every step of the way. And he's going to have, he's going to make every effort to slow things down. Um, I think for all the reasons that Jamil suggests. I mean, so I think he is holding out hope that he will, uh, that he will in fact be elected. And then he'll have various ways to try and either hit pause on the prosecution or maybe even prevent it altogether, you know, parting himself, um, uh, taking advantage of an Office of Legal Counsel memo, um, which says that the indictment and criminal prosecution of a president is unconstitutional. So once he's president, he could rely on that memo to require the Justice Department to cease prosecuting him. And I think it would likely would do so because an Office of Legal Counsel memo issued in uh, October 2000 um, remains executive branch precedent, um, binding on the Department of Justice and Mueller um, when he was previously looking into indicting the president had concluded that that was binding on him, even as special counsel. So it would be difficult for Jack Smith to come to a different conclusion um, in this case, um, though many have thought that Mueller probably made the wrong decision on that. Um, so, so his game is going to be trying to delay this as long as he can to fight every step of the way to make it as hard as possible for the prosecution. Now, you know, the prosecution has signaled that they're trying to streamline it and move it quickly um, and that they are going to try to move it along. I think, you know, there were many more documents than are listed in this indictment. And they probably chose uh, these documents to try and streamline the prosecution. Uh, they didn't try to throw every possible thing they could have at the president. And what they tried to do was really hone in on the things I think, I suspect, that they felt like they could pretty easily prove with a relatively small number of witnesses. So, you know, they are taking steps. They understand that that's going to be the uh, President Trump's effort is going to be to delay this. And I think they've tried to structure the indictment to move it along. Um, but they don't have complete control over that, obviously. Um, and, you know, even in the best of times, this kind of a trial could take years. Um, and I think, you know, given uh, who we're dealing with um, and and his incentives, I think the chances are very good that this will end up being drawn out. Uh, and then if he is elected, we're going to be facing all of these unprecedented questions. Let's talk now about the decision to indict to begin with. Um, Jamil, uh, James Coney, when he decided not to prosecute Hillary Clinton, said that all cases uh, involving classified documents prosecuted by the Justice Department before involved clearly intentional or willful mishandling of classified information or vast quantities of material exposed in a way to support the implication of disloyalty to the U.S. or efforts to obstruct uh, justice. Um, was that Comey's standard met in this case? And uh, do you think, on balance, the decision to indict President Trump was correct or not? Well, look, um, you know, uh, the Comey standard, um, you know, in, in large part, not necessarily material because it's, you know, what, what applies is the law and the statute. And um, on that basis, and frankly, under the Comey standard on, uh, in either scenario, I think the standard is met. I think it is uh, impossible uh, and would be very hard for the Justice Department not to bring a prosecution um, in this case, given the facts as alleged in the indictment and the facts as we've at least heard them through media reporting. Now, again, the government has the burden of proof to prove those facts beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and oftentimes, reporting in the press, as we know, uh, can be inaccurate. Um, but based on what we now know today, I can't—I don't see a world in which the Justice Department couldn't 
didn't, shouldn't, and couldn't, could avoid bringing a prosecution like this, um, given what we know. Um, all that being said, we can't deny the politically fraught nature of a sitting president. Uh, for whom the attorney general works ultimately and for whom the special prosecutor works ultimately because we don't have an independent counsel statute anymore, um, who's himself running for re-election, uh, prosecuting the former holder of that office, unprecedented, who is also running for re-election, unprecedented, a year out or a year and a half out from, from an election. I mean, this is so politically dangerous and difficult and toxic. Um, and... President Trump and his team recognize that and are taking every step to take advantage of that of that fraughtness and that toxicity. Um, and I'm sure that was in the mind of the Justice Department when they brought this case. But I just can't see a world in which, given the facts as we know them, they had any other real option. So it's a really, you know, you talk about a rock and a hard place. This is the ultimate rock and a hard place. And we'll see how it plays out going forward. Um, but look, I mean, I think uh, on, on the question of, of, of these documents and, and the charges being brought, the president... Um, you know, there's two statutes that we could have brought this, uh, the two parts of the espionage I think could have brought this under. They could have brought this under the having lawful access, right? Somebody who has lawful access, um, has documents, uh, documents related to the na to national defense, willfully retains them and refuses to respond to a demand for them back. They can be prosecuted just as much as somebody who has unauthorized access, which is what was charged here, and simply doesn't return them to somebody entitled to receive them, right? And so um, in both scenarios, they only charge one of them. They have it, I think, as a backup plan. Potentially, they can charge uh, 793D. Uh, but in any event, look, the president didn't have security clearance. This argument that these are presidential records or, or there are personal records even, which none of which is true, um, at the most, the presidential records which means NARA has to have them and NARA didn't have them. Um, you know, there's there's... He doesn't have a leg to stand on, I don't think. And we'll see. I mean, this is going to be litigated, right? But from my perspective, he doesn't have a leg to stand on the claims he's made about declassification. He doesn't have a leg to stand on the presidential records argument. He should never have had these documents as Vice President Mike Pence correctly laid out. Um, and, um, you know, he he held on to them knowing he had them. So, you know, I just don't see how a, 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 a in the long run, President Trump is able to get out from under this indictment um, and uh, and not and not be convicted in the long run. That being said, none of this may matter because if politically the analysis is as we say it is and it benefits him and he's elected as Ona lays out, this all could go away almost instantaneously. And that is the the interesting thing about our system and one of the very uh, very challenges that I'm sure the Justice Department right now is grappling with actively. Ona, share with us. Please, your thoughts about the decision to indict. You wrote in the New York Times what Donald Trump and reality winner have in common. Uh, uh, describe uh, the, the reality winner case and, and, and why you, you, you think that an ordinary person facing these charges would almost certainly have been indicted. And then talk us through the Comey standard and, 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 and the arguments of some that the standards for indicting former presidents should be even higher. Yeah. Um, so Reality Winner is a young woman who was working uh, as a contractor, um, and she saw a document that she thought showed um, that there had been interference in the 2016 election. Um, as she tells it, you know, she was motivated by sort of a desire to get this information out into the public. She printed it out. Um, she took it home, um, and then she mailed it to The Intercept. It's one document. Um, classified at the top secret level. 
Um, she didn't do a very good job of hiding her tracks um, because there were, uh, I think, only six people who had printed out this document they were able to figure out. And she had sent an email or somehow corresponded with the intercept from her government computer. So they pretty quickly figured out it was her. Um, she was prosecuted and she was sentenced over five years in prison for this one document, one document. Now, legally, she's a little different because she actually had lawful access to the document. Um, so she was cleared into the program. She had lawful access, but then she transmitted the document. She took it home, which she wasn't lawfully permitted to do, and she transmitted the document to someone who wasn't permitted to, to see it. Um, so she was prosecuted for that reason. Now, Trump, um, just to emphasize, and, and your listeners may not fully understand this because they may be thinking, well, he's a former president. He was read into these programs. Like, he had access, you know, so, like, is it really that big of a deal? And the answer is, yes, it really is that big of a deal um, because he, um, as former president, no longer had access to those programs. I, when I worked for the Department of Defense, um, had top secret special compartmented information access. Jamil had access uh, at the top secret SCI level. Um, I was read into a number of code word programs. And if someone was to try to show those to me today, that would be illegal. Um, and if I was to have access to those documents today, I could be prosecuted um, because even though, even, even documents that I read or even documents I wrote um, when I was working for the government, right? So I can't see those documents anymore. I'm not legally allowed to see them because I'm no longer cleared into these programs. And so that is, um, that is the reality of anyone who has worked in government and who has access to these top secret programs. That's why he no longer has authorized access. That's why he's being charged for the unauthorized access. And I think that relates, uh, Jamil's right, that they potentially could have focused on the fact of his removal. You know, so when he had authorized access, he made the decision to remove these documents and take them uh, with him, you know, so that, that would have been unauthorized removal. I think they decided to just make it simple and focus on the retention because that makes it a kind of more straightforward case, though they could potentially have said when he has had lawful access that he kind of made these plans to, to remove them illegally. Um, I think that would have been a much harder case to make. So, you know, what's striking and what's what really, you know, what, what part of what led me to write this New York Times op-ed op was just, you know, this claim that somehow he's being unfairly targeted. And, and I, just, I, I just said, you know, let's look at some of the people that his own Justice Department prosecuted. Reality Winner is one of them. One document that she removed. Um, another person that I speak to is Nikki Afo, who, who worked for the National Security Agency, decided unlawfully to take work home at night and work on it at home. The Ru Russian hackers hacked into his computer and got access to the information it's believed. Um, and um, and he did never, never transmitted it. He just brought it home to try and get work done on the evenings and weekends. And he was charged um, and sentenced to more than five years in prison as well by President Trump's Department of Justice. So this idea that somehow, you know, he's being treated unfairly, if anybody else did what he's charged with doing, they would probably already be in jail. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it, he's actually getting a much more generous treatment as is appropriate for a former president. This is much more politically fraught. But as Jamil said, these sets of charges, just DOJ couldn't fail to bring the case once they knew that these things had happened. You know, this is just so overwhelmingly a violation of the law and with the most top secret documents that are um, important to U.S. national security. I just, I don't see how they had a choice, honestly.
Jamil, both you and Ona have argued that on the law there was no choice but to indict. And yet uh, many Republicans disagree. Senator Josh Hawley said after the indictment came down, this is not about Donald Trump. It's about the United States of America. It's about whether the Constitution is still real. This is about any if any American can expect uh, due process of law. Uh, many other elected Republicans have also criticized the indictment. And other scholars like John Yu have argued that this, although there was grounds to indict, the standards for indicting former presidents should be even higher than other citizens in these polarized age, and you should have to meet a standard of impeachability before you indict. Uh, what, what, what are your responses to both of those arguments? Well, look, uh, even on the John Yu standard, a standard of impeachability, I think that if uh, any president were to do what President Trump has done, knowingly take highly classified documents out, store them in an insecure manner, potentially show them after he lacks a clearance and to people that lack clearances and describe them and discuss them. To me, if he was in office, he, it wouldn't matter because, because he obviously has the right to do that. But if he's once he's out of office, if you're looking at the standard of impeachability, those type of things are the kind of things that, to me, reach the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. It's literally taking information that the government believes would cause extraordinarily grave harm if released to people not authorized to have it. And then you have a former president doing exactly that, releasing it to people not authorized to have it, storing it in ways where foreign nationals could have had access to it. I mean, it, this if there's anything that constitutes a high crime and misdemeanor, Jeffrey, this is it, right? We're there. And so even the John U standard, in my view, is met whether or not that's the right standard. Um, and look, I do think part of this, though, is you're going to hear soon. You haven't heard it yet. But you're going to hear soon, I predict, the Trump team looking back to Chelsea Manning, right, who was convicted of releasing classified information unlawfully, sentenced to 35 years in prison. And after seven years, her sentence was commuted by President Obama, who's, you know, for whatever reason made, and we could we debate whether that was smart or not. I think it was a terrible idea. I think it set the wrong standard. I think it's why you see reality winner happening. It's why you see uh, things like um, uh, the latest individual has been charged with uh, leaking stuff on Discord. Um, you 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 erode the, the 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 importance of protecting classified information when you engage in such commutations. Um, I guarantee you, the Trump administration will say, Barack Obama gave clemency to Chelsea Manning, who, who knowingly leaked classified information. How can you prosecute? Um, and, and, and Joe Biden was the vice president when that happened. How can you prosecute a former president? How can you try and convict them? And then if, if convicted, why shouldn't he receive clemency? Why shouldn't he receive a pardon when Chelsea Manning got that same treatment? Um, and, and you will see that argument made. And frankly, you know, this is what happens when, you know, you try to have it both ways. You can't say you want to really protect classified information. You want to really defend it and then have bad things happen, like the vice president, Vice President Pence, the former president, uh, the current president, former vice president, Joe Biden, uh, having classified information at their homes. Yes, the cases are very different. They turn them over. They know they, they have when they found they have it, they turn them over. But we've got this case for Hillary Clinton, too, which you have already heard President Trump talking about having classified information being transmitted uh, via email and the like over a private server, which she and all her team knew was not acceptable under uh, the Federal Records Act and the like. And so, you know, I mean, they're going to throw a lot of sand in the gears to, to, to conflate the Hillary Clinton situation, the Biden situation, the Pence situation, and the Chelsea Manning commutation. And the problem is, like with everything, there is some merit to those arguments. At the end of the day, the president should not have done what he did. What he did was illegal. He should be prosecuted. He should be convicted. But 
There's a lot of stuff to point to, which his team is very good at and will. And remember, this is the Teflon Don. He he has he has skated out from under under charges that people have thought were were successful before. And so we're likely to see a lot of sand in the gears, a long a long effort, and at the end of the day, real political benefit to President former President Trump that may ultimately result in him getting the Republican nomination and him being reelected. I agree with all of that. I just want to say a couple of brief words. You know, I mean, he's absolutely using that as a strategy. But if you go like point by point through each of these, like they're all wildly different, right? But the, the difficulty is that he makes these claims and then uh, it's you have to like give a thoughtful, considered, you know, response to explain why they're different. You know, like with Hillary Clinton, for instance, you know, she, first of all, had lawful access to all of that information, right? This all happened while she was still Secretary of State. Um, uh, and the the investigation found that that very, basically none of it was marked classified. Um, so, uh, you know, they retroactively determined that some of the information that had been, that had been provided um, in these emails um, was classified. But it wasn't like there were like, documents that were top secret, you know, that were marked in the proper ways that are being transmitted over, over email. That is just not, not what happened. Um, not to defend this decision to create a private email server, I think there's actually more issues around the Presidential Records Act than I don't think it was, I think it was clearly not an Espionage Act violation. Um, so anyway, the difficulty is with each of these claims, you know, a lawyer can go through and explain why they're different. <laughs> But they're very good at sort of throwing these things at the wall and kind of trying to see what might stick. You know, this idea that somehow what Pence and Biden did is just the same is also quite laughable. You know, it seems quite clear that that was inadvertent, that almost certainly in both cases, junior staffers packed up their offices. They were sort of packed away for some time. And then when it got opened by lawyers and staffers, they realized, oh my God, there's documents in here. And they called the federal government immediately. So it was it's very different. And, and we don't know exactly what was in those documents, but from what we can tell um, from what has been shared thus far, nothing even approaching the level of importance to national security of the documents that are detailed in the indictment. But it takes you a lot of words to make those arguments, right? It takes you a lot of words to to go through and explain why each of these is not the same as what uh, President Trump is being accused of in this indictment. And I think he will exploit that. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, it's going to take, hopefully, you know, people like us trying to explain that these are different. Uh, These really are very different. And that's part of, again, what I was trying to do in my New York Times op-ed is to say, like, you know, there are all these claims that he's being treated specially and differently and, you know, treated worse, but actually, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. He's he's basically getting what he deserves, which is, you know, a, a Espionage Act indictment for crimes that if he had committed them, his own Department of Justice um, would have prosecuted anybody else who'd done anything remotely like this. Jamil, uh, what do you say to your uh, conservative and Republican friends when they claim that this is a political prosecution? How, how, how do you argue otherwise? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't doubt uh, that there is a claim to be made that it's problematic when a sitting president who's running for re-election seeks to prosecute the former holder of that office who's also running for re-election. It's massively problematic. And frankly, the best thing that Joe Biden can do to take the air out of that balloon 
is to not run for re-election. There's a lot of reasons why Joe Biden shouldn't run for re-election. That's probably amongst them. Um, probably one of the lesser ones, frankly. But um, but look, at the end of the day, I think it's very hard to push back on that claim other than to say, look at the facts. Look at what President Trump did, right? Particularly for national security Republicans. I mean, you know, for a long time, national security was at the heart of the conservative story about why we should be elected to office, why our, our our people should be elected to Congress, to the Senate, to the to the presidency. We're better, we're quote unquote better defenders of national security, right? And in this case, you see conservatives running from what is clearly the obvious national security p- position here, which is nobody who doesn't have a clearance should have highly classified information, president or not, um, should have highly classified information in their possession. No one should store it in a ballroom or a bathroom. I mean, and and I mean, it's it's laughable, laughable, uh, Jeff, to have a Republican leader saying, "Oh, well, the bathrooms have locks on them." I mean, just it's 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 crazy town that that's where we're at as conservatives and as 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 national security uh, hawks. I mean, yet you hear these arguments being made um, on on the Hill um, in, in 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 a silly manner, um, and so. Um, I think that's what I'd point to. I'd say, look at the facts. No one should get away with this. Not a president, not a secretary of state, not a secretary of defense. If this had been Hillary Clinton, we'd be railing against her. And we did rail against her her transmission of of, of, of government, government materials and classified information, um, you know, admittedly, like as Ona says later, determined later after the fact over email systems. And yet tr- President Trump has boxes of classified documents labeled, marked as such, Above top secret SCI S SAP material um, sitting in a ballroom at Mar-a-Lago in a storage room with, with, with people having access to it, and we're going to defend that, and we're going to argue that this is all political. There is a political aspect to it that has to be discussed and debated and talked about, um, but claiming it's purely political and that there's not a national security rationale here for what's going on is ridiculous on its face. And Republicans, conservatives, folks in my party should really look at ourselves and say, what is what are we really talking about when it comes to national security? Is this not really just about a president who mishandled it and mishandled the situation, did something wrong, and frankly, is was not fit for office when he was in it, is not fit for office today, and 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 should not be the nominee of this party going forward. And Ona, what do you say to your conservative and Republican students uh, along the same lines? And, and, and why is this case, uh, in your view, a, a clear case for prosecution? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that Jamil said. And, and I think part of what we have to say is, you know, I think in general there is this tendency to think about the law in a different way when you're looking at your, you know, a, a political actor on your own side. Um, and in general, when I try to teach my students, I try to teach them to hold everyone to the same legal standard. You know, if we're going to hold someone to legal standard on the Republican side, we should hold them to the same standard on the Democratic side, that you should not be changing your view of the law depending on the political party of the person that, that you're talking about prosecuting. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, I've tried to teach that generally. You know, this is a question that comes up in a lot of contexts, right? So, um, you know, people's views of the stringency of war powers uh, often vacillates depending on whether it's their own president in power, right? Um, you know, all of a sudden, Democrats are, you know, not big fans of the war powers resolution when there's a Democratic president in office. Um, and they're big fans of it when there's a Republican president in office. And, 
you know, in general, I think we ought to be thinking about applying the same law um, to uh, people in the same position, regardless of the party that they that they hold. And and I think that holds here. You know, I, I would be saying the same thing regardless of whether this is a Democrat or Republican president, uh, former president that we're talking about. Um, because, you know, this is really dangerous to national security. I mean, those of us who care about national security, those of us who've worked in the national security establishment, I mean, this is gobsmacking. I mean, the the kind of information that, you know, people, people you know, put their lives at risk to gather this information and to defend this information, and people's lives are at risk if this information gets out. Um, and And it's the credibility of the United States is very much on the line as well. I mean, the ability to cooperate with allies, to get information from allies, to share intelligence with allies is compromised, and that compromises U.S. national security, and that compromises our ability to defend ourselves. So I um, think we should be holding um, presidents to account, former presidents to account, or anyone to account who really puts U.S. national security at risk in this way, no matter their party. And and I and I try to make that argument with my students um, across the board, not just when it comes to Espionage Act violations, but when it comes to law as a, as a general matter. Um, and, and I think there's a temptation to sort of view the law differently depending on the party of the person. But I really think that, um, you know, that that's a tendency that needs to be fought. Jamil, uh, the U.S. now joins other countries that have prosecuted former heads of state, uh, including uh, France, uh, South Korea, and Italy, where uh, Silvio Berlusconi just just uh, died this week. The New York Times had an interesting comparative piece recently that quoted an Italian political scientist who said, I don't think you can get it right in prosecuting former heads of state, but that's not the same as advising against it. If you think, legally speaking, there was a crime, you have to proceed, you just do it. But there's a justice story and a politics story, and you have to keep them separate. And the story of Berlusconi, uh, who was prosecuted several times, convicted of tax fraud, had other verdicts overturned on appeal, and only escaped other charges by having the law changed was a cautionary tale. The conclusion of that political scientist was looking at the Berlusconi cases, I'd say it was right to do it, even if it made no difference and prolonged his political life. Kind of a complicated precedent, but what can we learn from other countries that have prosecuted from heads of state uh, moving forward? Yeah, you know, it's that's a great question and a very hard one. Um, you know, it's hard to know what the lesson is because unfortunately, um, the lesson has political and legal consequences, right? You have laws that may change over time. You have precedents that might change over time. Um, our decision or our, our ability to avoid having prosecuted a, a sitting or former president in the past, um, and our and the the OLC opinions that that owner refers to um, that, that suggest that the prosecution of a sitting president may be unconstitutional. That the only remedy for a sitting president is impeachment, which of course was tried twice with Donald Trump and failed twice with Donald Trump um, and plays into his story about, look, they, they tried to impeach me twice. Now they're trying to prosecute me in state court with a Democrat attorney general. They're trying to prosecute me in federal court with a, with a, with a Democrat president and a, and a political appointee as attorney general and a, and a special prosecutor who reports that attorney general and then Georgia and, and all these things. You know, it, it, it paints a story that plays into a number of dynamics that, that Donald Trump has been talking about for a long time, this idea of the deep state, this idea of a federal government that is being weaponized, uh, this idea um, that the rule of law is not strong and the rule of law is being undermined, while at the same time, these very arguments themselves, Jeffrey, undermine the rule of law. 
undermine the Constitution, undermine our trust, our faith in the FBI and the Justice Department. Um, and and so, you know, look, if Donald Trump either either escapes prosecution or is convicted and is ultimately pardoned or not pardoned or um, or um, or uh, or the like, you know, sends commuted. You can be sure that bringing this prosecution and its successful or unsuccessful completion will almost certainly re- result in not just changes in the precedent of what we do, but changes in the law itself when whoever's party takes power that I'm not sure are going to be positive for the rule of law in this country. And so I, I it just it, that's why I, I, when I say that the, that the Justice Department and, and, and the Biden administration is between a rock and a hard place, they're between a constitutional rock and a legal hard place that is, and a rule of law hard place that is impossible to work your way out of. And the reason we're here, Jeff, to be really clear, the reason we are here is because Donald Trump, when he was in office, did not behave appropriately as a president should. And when he left office, did not behave appropriately as a president should. The responsibility for why we are where we are today is not the Biden administration. It's not the FBI. It's not the Justice Department. It is Donald J. Trump. Oh, no. What do you think we can learn from other countries that have prosecuted former presidents? And if we are between a constitutional rock and a legal hard place, how can we get out of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it it's. I, I would think about it this way. What is the alternative? You know, the alternative would be letting this go unprosecuted. And I think the message that that would send would be really um, dangerous because it suggests that, you know, there's one law for the reality winners and the GFOs of the world, and there's another law for former presidents um, who, you know, could who commit crimes far worse and are not held responsible for them. And I think in a democracy um, committed to rule of law, one can't have that position. I would say, I think what, one thing that's really interesting is that um, uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel appointed to, to lead the prosecution, has experience in international war crimes tribunals. Um, he has experience, of course, prosecuting uh, U.S. officials as well, but he also has gone to The Hague um, and uh, convicted high-ranking officials um, in Kosovo for their for their engagement in war crimes. Um, and I think that experience is sort of instructive because the idea of international criminal justice is that there are um, leading government figures who commit crimes and ought to be held to account. Um, And if they're not held to account by their domestic systems, in this case, um, they can be held to account internationally. Um, And I think that that experience is probably um, going to come in handy here because the set of questions that you face in international criminal trials is is not so distant from the kinds of uh, challenges that you face here. Remember, for instance, that uh, Putin has been indicted by the International Criminal Court for his crimes that he's committing in the course of the war in Ukraine. And the U.S. um, and U.S. officials have generally celebrated that. Um, And they've done so because he has committed horrific crimes. And those crimes are crimes for which he should be held responsible. So, you know, I think uh, I I am aware of and and I am concerned about the sort of political challenges but I also think that we can't, you know, one has to be aware of that, and but one can't let that stop you from enforcing the law when really egregious violations are taking place. And you have to be careful, you have to be thoughtful about making sure that it isn't politically motivated, um, uh, and you have to really make the case to the American public in this case that that's, that that's true. 
Um, but I also don't think that the alternative story is is a plausible one, which is that we should just sort of let him get away with whatever he wants, because, uh, you know, that's not acceptable in a democracy um, committed to, to effective functioning of the law. Jamil, what lessons do history teach about what the founders thought about the prosecution of uh, presidents and elected leaders? We, we have Alexander Hamilton expressing confidence that presidents who were impeached would still be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law. We have the prosecution of Vice President um, Aaron Burr, as well as presidential candidate Eugene V. Debs. What can we learn from history? Well, unfortunately, the Debs precedent is one that we might not want to learn, which is um, Debs claimed uh, and and did run for election from jail um, and uh, asserted, uh, receiving millions of votes, asserted uh, that if elected, he would pardon himself. Um, and so in a lot of ways, uh, in the 1920s, not not that that long ago, 100 years ago, um, uh, but an era that, you know, that, that people still can sort of somewhat relate to. Um, and so, of course, Eugene Debs is a socialist. So, you know, interesting situation for, for Donald J. Trump so, citing the, 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 De- the Debs case. Um, but look, I think that as a general matter, and this is where I think John Yu um, um, has it right, which is as a general matter, um, our founders thought about the remedy for senior elected officials, the president like, that they do, that there is sort of a different, uh, a different standard and a different approach to Ona's point um, on that question. Um, and that impeachment is the is the, is the primary remedy. And having tried and failed twice, even after January 6th, right? An insurrection at the Capitol, fomented in part, significant part, by the by the then sitting president, the fact that the that the House could not bring charges um and and that the Senate could not convict. Well, the House did bring charges, but the Senate couldn't convict. Um is hugely problematic for the political environment around uh, this prosecution and around uh, uh, what you do with with former uh, presidents. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why January 6th did not go down the the, pro- the the impeachment around January 6th didn't go down the way it should have. Frankly, I think if Speaker Pelosi had brought those charges immediately, immediately after January 6th, in the in the days and weeks after it, uh, where it would have mattered. I actually think you would have seen a rapid impeachment and a rapid conviction in the Senate. Um, but too much time passed, too many things went past. It didn't matter because the president was out of office. And I think that gave time and space. Um, and I think it was, it was a politically poor decision, frankly, a constitutionally poor decision. But here we are. And again, I do think there are ways that could take some of the steam out of this argument about the political prosecution of Donald Trump. But those go to Joe Biden's decision to pursue office. And I'm sure those that support him say he shouldn't have to make that choice. But the truth of the matter is that he has a choice to make, and by choosing to run for re-election and prosecute a former president, even on potentially meritorious charges, it is making the situation worse for our democracy, for the rule of law, and playing more into Donald Trump's hands politically, and I think that's a mistake. Ona, we may see a prosecution of uh, President Trump related to January 6th. The special counsel is still considering that. Uh, How how strong might those charges be and and uh, how might that play into the very complicated mix of law and politics moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that this indictment may be the first of many. Um, you know, so this is, and in fact, um, 
there's been speculation that this is not the only indictment that could come out of the unlawful retention of classified documents. Um, there could potentially be charges um, brought in New Jersey, for instance, um, where his Bedminster property is and where some of the crimes um, that are described have been committed and maybe others, um, but weren't appropriate to be charged in Florida. So, yeah, there could be lots more coming, um, you know, and, and and we know of some, but there might be others we don't know of. Um you know, this is a this is a former president who is going to be battling illegal cases for the rest of his life. Um, that's clear. Um, and, you know, any number of them could send him to jail, potentially. Um, and, you know, this unfortunately is uh, lending fuel to his fire to run for office. Um, you know, it obviously ought to ought to go the other direction, ought to make him a totally unacceptable candidate for for holding office. But it's creating, you know, fuel for him because obviously he has a personal incentive to run because then he has a chance of being able to sort of halt these charges, maybe even prevent them from going forward. Um, and uh, and he's able to sort of engage in his grievance politics um, uh, and, you know, make this part of his general set of arguments against the federal government, against, uh, you know, institutional authorities, against the, you know, the, the bureaucracy, against the deep state, you know, and, and, and it's kind of part of the narrative that he's tried to build throughout his, uh, his time in office and throughout, um, you know, his political career. Um, and it sort of fuels that. So, yeah, I mean, there's going to be a number of, of cases going forward, I suspect. Um, I suspect this is not going to be the only one. Uh, and I suspect he's going to deal with them in the same way, which is by trying to attack the prosecutors, um, by trying to delegitimize the system, by trying to de- delegitimize the law. Um, and, you know, that's going to work with a number of Americans. And that's really sad, um, frankly, because this is not only about what harm it does to our political system to have a former president being indicted, but what harm does the attack that he and other Republicans are waging against our legal system to try and respond to these charges? What what harm does that do to our sense of, you know, shared commitment and belief in legal institutions in this country and the undermining of a sense of, you know, that rule of law matters and that courts can be um, not just political tools, but but actually instruments of justice and that people are held equally to account to give an opportunity to defend themselves equally in court. You know, he's just lobbing one um, grenade after another at this system and, you know, that's in some ways, I think, the greater damage that's likely to be done is the harm that he's doing by by attacking the system that's trying to hold him to account and, and the people who are engaged in it. But, you know, that said, I don't know that I wouldn't have advised him doing otherwise because, frankly, the other choice, the choice of not indicting, if there are clear crimes, which this indictment lays out pretty clear crimes if they're able to prove them, not indicting would have been equally corrosive, if not more corrosive, to the legal system. It's just that it is going to be the subject of massive attacks. And that's really, um, I think, you know, for those of us who care about the law, who care about rule of law, who care about legal institutions, I think we're in for a really tough ride these next several years because there's going to be a segment of the American population that's going to come away from this believing that the court system is just a political instrument, believing this, this, this um, you know, rhetoric of the Department of Injustice, as, as Trump likes to call it, 
um, you know, they're going to believe that. Um, and and that, that does further harm and corrodes our sense of community and, and our belief in, in institutions that govern us. And, you know, that I think is, is a sad, um, sad consequence of this. A commitment to the rule of law and the institutions that defend it is, of course, uh, part of the National Constitution Center's mission statement. Uh, Jamil, uh, for uh, citizens of all perspectives who are committed to the rule of law on a nonpartisan basis, what's the right way to think about the Trump indictment? Do um, officials of both parties have an obligation to defend the courts as they evaluate these charges? And, And what can politicians and institutions like the NCC do to defend the nonpartisan adjudication of the rule of law moving forward? Yeah, it's a a great question and a really important one. We all, as Americans, have a responsibility uh, to defend the rule of law and to preserve it and protect it and to raise up our institutions uh, that that are there to protect and, and defend it. Um, that doesn't mean, uh, and in fact, to the contrary, that means that po- and politicians, our politicians have more of a responsibility. They're the ones we elect to do exactly that. They have they have the opportunity to lead us, and they should lead us in a direction that defends and supports the rule of law, not undermines it, as we've seen done time and again. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, Jeff, I, I think that there that there's there's a lot to be said on both sides of the aisle when it comes to the rule of law and failing to defend it, right? I don't think it's helpful for President Biden to run for re-election when he's prosecuting a former president. I don't think it's helpful for President Obama to have commuted Chelsea Manning's sentence uh, when she was convicted clearly of a crime and sentenced to 35 years by a jury of her peers. I don't think it's helpful um, when Democrats defend Hillary Clinton's uh, use of these email servers and say, well, that was okay, right? That wasn't that bad because she, at the time, they didn't know anybody that has access to classified information has responsibility to protect it and protect it effectively and not transmit it uh, in ways that violate the Federal Records Act. So, you know, I think um, I think there's it, this isn't about Republicans and Democrats at the end of the day. This is about the importance of the rule of law. And by the way, it's critical that when people fail to uphold the rule of law and you have FBI lawyers lying in pleadings to the FISA court that they are prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law and made to serve jail time, not simply let off with a slap on the wrist um, and and, uh, and 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 keeping their bar license, which to me is outrageous. That, that FBI lawyer that lied in the investigation, um, I forget the name of it now. Um, but uh, uh, look, at the end of the day, right, if we're to uphold the rule of law, we have to bring the nation together. The divisive politics that we've seen over the last, you know, seven, eight, ten years are unhelpful. The way that politicians talk about our institutions, our constitution, about the Justice Department, about uh, the FBI, about the about about the like. Um, those things are not helpful. It's not helpful when you have a president of the United States stand up in front of the world and say, "I believe Vladimir Putin over my own intelligence community," as Donald Trump did. That is that is not the kind of man who should hold office again. It is incumbent upon conservatives and Republicans to stand up and say, this is not the person we want to bear the standard of our party, particularly somebody who fomented an insurrection on January 6th and who's behaving the way he did with classified information. At the same time, Democrats have to recognize that, that running a candidate for office who's currently in office and seeking to prosecute that former president is also unhelpful. There's a lot to be done. And frankly, it comes down to the American people. It comes down to these elections that are coming up. We have elections in this country. They are free. They are fair. Don't believe the hype about, about elections not being free and fair in this country. That's not true. Um, and Americans have a choice at the polls. They have a choice in primaries and they have a choice in general election. That choice may determine whether the rule of law survives in this country, and both parties have responsibility to uphold that, and politicians of all stripes have responsibility to uphold that. And we should hold our politicians as voters, we should hold our politicians accountable as we have the right to do, and other people in the world fight to have the right to do. Ona, the last word in this 
important discussion is to you. What can elected officials, Democratic and Republican, as well as uh, nonpartisan institutions like the NCC, uh, do to inspire citizens to defend the rule of law moving forward? Well, I think academic institutions and um, institutions who are engaged in, in educating the public can try to do things like this, which is actually unpack the reality of the situation and try to go through some of the untruths that are being spoken and try to explain, you know, what the truth of the matter is. So I do think that that is part of our job as academics. I think that's part of our education mission. I think that's part of, you know, we don't just, we should just be talking to each other and not even just to our students, but talking to the general public um, as a whole to try and explain this because this stuff is complicated, you know, frankly. And, um, and it is, you know, challenging to understand why it is that a president that had person who had access to his information as president, like, why can't he just keep it in, in, in his ballroom at Mar-a-Lago? Like, you know, it does require some explanation. Um, uh, so I, I think that that is part of our role. Um, uh, as to politicians, you know, I really would call on politicians, and in, in particular, I, I'm concerned with the way in which some Republican politicians have jumped on this bandwagon of suggesting that this is merely a political prosecution. I think that if they look at the reality of the charges, um, as some have, to be clear, like the, a number of Republican politicians have said, look, if these charges are, are proven, this is this is really damaging and he's not fit to be president. There have been plenty of Republicans who've said that. And that, I think, is is what they should be saying, all should be saying. Um, those who are suggesting that this is politically motivated, those who are suggesting that this is unjustified, I think they should read the indictment um, for themselves. And I think they should come to recognition that, you know, those kinds of arguments are really damaging to our democracy and that their loyalty to former president should not outweigh their loyalty to the United States and to its institutions and to its national security. Um, and if they come to that conclusion, I think that their rhetoric um, will be tempered um, and they ought to, as we all have, should, wait and see what is proven in court um, and, you know, let the court process unfold. Um, but don't fuel this idea of a department of injustice. Don't fuel this idea that this is merely politically motivated. Don't fuel this idea that somehow um, Trump should be entitled to hold these very, you know, important national security secrets unlawfully and then play this kind of crazy shell game with his own lawyers and with the FBI um, and refusing to turn these documents over. Don't fuel that, because um, that is amplifying his very corrosive message. In these challenging times, the National Constitution Center will play the role of convening discussions like this so that we can indeed thoughtfully evaluate uh, the charges on all sides and citizens will make up their own minds. I'm reading now from... Justice Robert Jackson's definition of the rule of law in his statement to the Nuremberg prosecutions. And he said, all else will fail unless we can devise instruments of adjudication and conciliation so reasonable and acceptable to the masses of people that future governments will always have an honorable alternative to war. Thank you so much, Ona Hathaway and Jamil Jaffer, for a thoughtful, uh, considered and urgently important discussion about the future of the rule of law in America. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Jeff. This episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Sam Desai. It was engineered by Greg Sheckler. 
Research was provided by Connor Rust, Thomas Vallejo, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. Sign up for the newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. And friends, remember, in these challenging times, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, and the dedication to the rule of law of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.